Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at what investors and citizens of the UK can learn from star cricketer Ben Stokes, as well as the past few days' seismic developments in the Brexit saga, with Mike Haslam, Head of Funds Distribution, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to Word on the Street. My name is Mike Haslam and this is my opportunity to look back over the week and have a look at the uh, the headlines and kind of delve a little bit beyond them and try and understand exactly what's been going on. And to help me um, sort through this, I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. Thanks for joining me today, Will. So, Will, it's, you know, it's the end of August, summer still really, I guess. Things are looking pretty quiet. What have we got? A new series of bake-off, still got a bit of quick on the horizon. What do you think? Things have settled down a bit? doesn't feel like it very much, Mike, does it? No, we've sort of got crises all over the world by the looks of things. And But happily, I'm off to the cricket next Friday. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of respite, maybe. Very nice. Now, one of, one of, one of the um, stories I just want to pick up on first, uh, the story that's obviously dominating, there was this... Um, I was reading about this um, 93-year-old lady who was um, holidaying, who has been holidaying in Scotland this week. Um, then halfway during the week, knock on the door. Who's there? None other but Jacob Rees-Mogg there with a piece of paper asking her to sign it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sign it, she does. And then a couple of minutes later, Jeremy Corbyn on the phone wanting to wanting to zip up there and meet her as well. And then you've got Joe Swinson on the phone wanting to meet and a Subri on the phone. And I'm thinking, leave her alone. You know, she's trying to take a break from running the British monarchy. Yeah, we all deserve uh, a holiday. <laughs> but you know, like, but but seriously though, you know, there's a lot of things been happening this week that I'm I'm learning so many new things that I never knew even possible about the UK government and politics in general in this country. Uh, you know, you've got John Burko, the speaker this week, calling it a constitutional outrage what has happened. But is he right? You know, is this really extreme or, or, is, it, or is it quite normal? Well, it's not normal. I think that's the first thing to say. Well, there are elements of it that are not normal. So the act of proroguing parliament, that's, that's, not, that's not unusual. That happens. Um, you know, we've just had a kind of two-year parliamentary session, which is a bit unusual. So no Queen's speech during that period. Uh, and essentially, that's almost been because all that speaks of the the idea that there's been not much legislative business other than Brexit during that period. So it's not um, not entirely out of the norm uh, to do that. But the timing is considered, you know, controversial at the very least. The problem for us, I guess, in in these kind of situations, um, you know, in, in much like um, in the US, uh, the US China kind of trade tensions, you've got two. Um, kind of negotiations going on, which could be characterized as kind of two games of chicken. Um, Both sides are trying to force um, uh, the other side to blink a little bit, to give them better terms of trade. Now, um, in those situations where these kind of hardball negotiations are being very much uh, conducted very much in the public sphere, the problem for us is how literally um, should we interpret um, the words and deeds of the main protagonists? Now, for sure, in this situation, you are um, reducing the time available to those who would look to thwart um, you know, exiting the EU without a deal. Um, and you, you are reducing their time. You're, you're squeezing parliamentary time a little bit, only by a matter of days. I mean, so it's not sort of massive, massive, and there is still time to do so um, if, those, um, if, those, if those forces can coalesce. It's also a chance to get a manifesto out there, as I spoke, full of sort of, you know, domestic priorities in preparation potentially for a general election that people do see coming sooner or later. But also there may be an element, if you look at it from that game theory perspective, um, of messaging to Europe. Uh, You know, you're sort of saying, look, you know, 
parliament um, can't stand in the way of this or is unlikely, getting less likely to be able to stand in the way of this, uh, you need to take the threats, um, you know, that we will leave without a deal seriously. Uh, and it's really sort of, you know, potentially seen through that prism, it could be an attempt to just try and force the, uh, the EU to blink a little bit on that backstop. Okay, so coming back to what's happened this week, I mean, could the Queen have said no to Boris Johnson? No, not really. She's very much um, she's very much acting within her kind of you know constitutional um, role. Uh, she's taking the advice of her minister um, on uh, on the act of prorogation. Um, there are situations, so you know, down the line, there could be situations where the monarch could play, or, or the monarch's role is slightly more uncertain. Let's say so, in the event of a no confidence vote, uh, you know, where her ministers aren't necessarily. Um, Commanding the support of the of Parliament, um, is there a role for 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 the, for the monarch in that situation? The problem we have at the moment is that we have a constitution of evolving precedent. We don't have a written down constitution like they have in the U.S., and we have a relatively uh, our Supreme Court is a relatively new. Thing relative to the US again. And we're sort of unsure about the relative powers of these institutions in these kind of unprecedented um, situations. So it is kind of, uh, you know, we are looking at kind of a constitutional crisis, but some would argue, some constitutional historians would argue that this constitutional crisis has been going on for several decades. We're just not necessarily equipped to deal uh, with the idea of, um, well, since we joined the European Economic Community back in 1973, to that extent, uh, you know, Parliament's kind of power has um, uh, has uh, has been uncertain during that time, and it's kind of crystallising um, at the moment. These kind of fears about um, your uh, the organisation of your constitution and where the powers lie. Okay, and, and what about how the media is, is portraying it? Do you feel there's a there's a sense of over centralisation? You know, you've 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 talked in the past about phrases such as crashing out of Europe is you know is all over the media. Do you think that is still Still, still very much the case. Well, I mean, when we talk about the media sensationalizing stuff, that's kind of their job. You know, we're a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like a, you know, a fisherman shaking his fist at the sea a little bit, isn't it? The media just does what it does, but it, they certainly reflect um, the wider debate. I think, you know, both, uh, you know, amongst politicians and citizens of the UK, you people have just taking more extreme views, extreme language. Sort of social media is full of these kind of very strong diatribes and. Um, that's kind of the function of where we're at. You know, this country is split down the middle on this question. Um, and neither side has really changed their views very much, um, in spite of sort of all sorts of different information coming in. Um, it's both sides maybe sort of succumbing to something called confirmation bias, you know, only really looking at the information that confirms their position. So you are finding, you know, that, that, that split that this, uh, this question has created very much still exists. And when you look beyond the headlines, it's really, you know, when you look at the biggest stumbling point, there has to be... Um, a, the Irish backstop. Do you, do you believe there is room to manoeuvre here? Well, I mean, I think people who people rightly point out that if there's been no progress on this very thorny issue up until this point, how can we expect something to move now? Um, and from the EU perspective, you know, it, it's pretty well understood that they're going to be very unwilling to throw, you know, a smaller nation under the bus in Ireland, if that is the case. Um, they won't want to voluntarily um, expose the single market or weaken it in any way or weaken the attraction of being part of it. Um, and also there's an element that they don't want to lose face either. You know, they, they have other negotiations going on, the EU. Brexit isn't the only show in town. And, and they need to be, you know, present a kind of, you know, a strong negotiating posture. However, I think we want to be wary of um, underestimating uh, the desire to, to 
to get a deal done here. I think both sides are very wary of finding out what no deal exit looks like. You know, there's going to be, of course, lots of bravado on both sides. You know, that's part of the negotiating posture. But behind closed doors, there are very few UK politicians, um, elected politicians, who um, are keen to find out what it looks like. And if you think about it, from a UK perspective, whatever you think about hard rights, and it might be fine, there are just so, it creates so many unknowns. You're putting your fate, short-term economic fate, very much in the hands of other people. So, you know, France will be, um, you know, instrumental in deciding, you know, the level of surveillance on um, HGVs going through Calais. The EU will be in charge of, you know, many of the levers of deciding how many deals to roll over in the short run. Um, and the British public will be in charge of how much or how little to panic. Um, and these things are, you know, it just makes it incredibly difficult. You you are in the lap of the gods a little bit. Um, and that would, that would, that that's surely unattractive uh, to, to elected politicians on both sides. And from the EU perspective, you know, their economy, parts of their economy, certainly Germany is listing a little bit amidst these trade tensions and Brexit and problems in Turkey. Um, and that has created a weaker economic backdrop than they would look for. If there was to be a really chaotic, you know, UK exit from the union, it wouldn't be helpful there either. So there is quite a lot of incentive still to get a deal done. That's not to say, you know, that, you know, no deal is a really, it's a substantial threat, let's say. It's very difficult to put a probability on it, but we still wouldn't rule out some kind of last minute compromise from both sides to sort of get somewhere on this deal and, uh, and avoid a hard Brexit. So let's look at the implications for an investor. And I guess the obvious consequence of all this uncertainty is what's happening to sterling. You know, this is a continual weakness. Um, I mean, straight to the point, I was on a call this week where a question was posed, should I be buying my euros today for my holiday next year? Okay, that's a bit crystal ball. But, you know, it, the implications on sterling are, you know, pretty much, you know, front and center. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking around the major sort of G10 currencies, actually, both euro and sterling are the ones that stick out as kind of cheapish, you know, or, or inexpensive. Um, so probably the opportunity between euro and sterling is a little bit less, but we would, looking at valuation metrics um, across the board, there are a few that don't highlight, uh, what most are highlighting, sorry, I should stop these double negatives, most, uh, uh, most are highlighting that sterling is inexpensive. Um, and the interesting thing here is that it may be that the world's kind of institutional investors are suffering from, um, there's a little bit of a sort of, you know, an embarrassment premium here. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, uh, in a sense, there are some trades uh, around the world um, where the way they could go wrong um, would be so embarrassing or career-threatening uh, to those that would partake in them um, that, in, a, in essence, people just decide that discretion is the better part of valour and they just stay away from them. And that can, if sufficient people, sufficient numbers of investors feel the same way, that can kind of, if you think about it, dislocate a currency's level from its true value. Now, we're looking at this very much uh, from, the, uh, from the perspective of investors, and we're not quite there yet, but it is something that we're starting to think about a bit more concretely, that you know, those uh, investors willing to hold their nose and close their eyes a little bit may be able to look through the other side of this. Uh, and on balance, there are probably now more scenarios where sterling ends uh, the next six to 12 months a bit higher uh, than it does, uh, than there are uh, it ending it a bit lower. Okay, so something obviously to keep an eye on, mm -hmm. and we will no doubt cover that again in future. Mm. Uh, so let's let's get back to the media headlines. Conscious that the 31st of October deadline, Halloween, is, is mm. fast approaching for you know the Brexit deadline. Um, even Starbucks have now started to uh, stock their uh, 
pumpkin spice latte, as I've seen it very nice um, appearing in store. So it really is not very far away. But with all this sensational headlines, what should I be reading? Is there anything out there that, that really gets gets underneath and you know it says it as it is? So it's quite difficult to find um, neutral sources of information um, in a way. Um, and, and as part of our job, you know, we'll make sure that we don't sort of, uh, or try and make sure that we don't um, uh, kind of echo chamber ourselves. So only subscribe to feeds that, um, you know, confirm our views. And so, uh, you know, very much making sure that we listen to, uh, you know, other podcasts and read other sort of literature from right across the kind of the political and uh, the political spectrum, political and economic spectrum. Um, some of the ones that I find quite helpful, you know, so um, I think 538, um, the uh, the US podcast is quite uh, quite useful, I have to say. Um, they tend to be pretty unbiased because they're looking at it from the perspective of betting markets. Um, they get some quite good um, good guys on, um, good people on. Um, this last one has been, is very useful for a start. Um, I also Brexit cast, quite useful. Um, but I mean, that's the BBC. Is that's it? the BBC one. I think probably the next month you should choose to maybe just sit down with a couple of Jack Reacher books um, and focus on the medium term outlook for the UK economy in a sense, which is it's still okay. I mean, we, we would retain our view that we've held ever since the referendum, well before the referendum, to be honest, that if the UK did decide to try and exit the EU, that it would be a headwind for the UK economy, but likely a digestible one over the long term. So we do think the trend growth rate will be lower, but not kind of disastrously so. We think that, you know, the UK fine institutions, you know, flexible and still likely growing workforce. Those are all sort of quite decent advantages, you know, long term. There are obviously, you know, more doomsday scenarios, the breakup of the UK, all that kind of thing. Um, so those are things that will sort of, you know, have to come into consideration, um, you know, as the evolving probabilities evolve over time. But at the moment, you know, we still think that sort of focus on that, uh, that not too gloomily medium term picture and try and stay away from kind of this, the, the headlines, I think, probably for your own health and uh, degree of hair loss, which I've obviously suffered from. And sticking with headlines, the other big story today is obviously the global trade war. Mm. Again, big headlines showing Trump's war of words and what the Chinese may or may not do in, in retaliation. Mm. Um, is this Trump's ploy? You know, you, you, were, you were talking earlier about a game of chicken. Is this another big game of chicken being played out in the media? Well, it, it, it looks like it. And I think we want to be wary of overconfidence here, don't we? I mean, we don't, I, I've, I've never met President Trump. I don't have an insight into his thinking specifically or, or any greater insight than anyone else, uh, you know, over here does. Um, but the, the sort of actions that we're seeing at the moment do look suspiciously like, you know, The Art of the Deal, the book, you know, the famous President Trump book. Um, uh so there is maybe an element of that. And in that situation, as we're saying, you know, if you are, uh, you know, playing a game of chicken, you know, two cars driving towards each other, the dominant strategy is, you know, throw your steering wheel out the window and act crazy. And, you know, the other side is bound to blink. Um, and, and in a sense, that you, if, you, if you think about it from a perspective of, you know, President Trump's um, likely kind of desire to get re-elected next year, one of the areas where he still polls reasonably strongly with the electorate is the, is, is the economy. Um, and so he's likely to want to bring that message. There is a sliver of the US electorate that swings from one side to the other on the economy. He will likely, our, our assumption is that he might want to target that, that sliver. Um, and so he's going to want to, the economy to be strong on the campaign trail. This is why one of the reasons why he's kind of urging the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates. And it may also explain why he's escalating the trade tensions now, because he needs to force a deal in the near term rather than let this drag over 
further uh, into uh, into the uh, election year. We we shall see. I mean, to our to our sort of purposes, we do see some sensitivity um, to the economy. Um, it is starting to sort of show up in certain areas of the world, um, and that may concern um, you know both sides a little bit. Um, but we've also got to be aware that we may easily be in a longer period of kind of you know of just a less friendly global. Um, backdrop for for trade, and that's just one of the sort of facts that we may have to live with. And sticking with the um, um, global trade war, I saw uh, Trump. I don't know whether it was instructing or ordering U.S. companies to, he says, move out of China. Mm. And I was reading about a company called Hasbro, which is a company that manufactures um, uh, Monopoly, Play-Doh, My Little Pony, etc. And they've been they've been. Um, uh, moving much of their production out of China to Vietnam and India. And I'm finding Vietnam, and especially India, has been a destination for alternative sort of, I guess, cheap cheap, cheap production. Mm. But is that just storing up uh, more trouble for the future, or is Trump really focused just on China? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, it really goes to, you know, because the last several decades have really seen an extraordinary reorganization of how goods and services are produced. Um, you know, so, you know, just look at the car industry. It's an example we regularly use. But, you know, a few decades ago, you know, most cars were, um, you know, all of the component parts and the manufacturers were domestic. Um, you know, whether you look at the UK, the US or Japan, you know, and they really primarily sold uh, domestically. Then there was this explosion um, of um uh, it, it was a permissive political atmosphere, apart from anything else, but also, you know, the ability, uh, the inf- information and uh, communications technology revolution made it much easier to um, spatially reorganize your factory facilities. And what I mean by that is, you know, it was much easier for me to base a factory in Vietnam or China and take advantage of cheap labor and various other factors to be able to kind of, you know, uh, extract cost out of my supply chain and also maybe get closer to some of my future end consumers. Now, if the political environment is changing and changing the calculus in terms of the cost structures and you're finding that there's some of that anyway because consumers in these countries are getting a lot richer and therefore the labor costs are going up so there is going to be a bit of a recalculation about what is optimal um, in terms of my supply chain where I get stuff where I make stuff where I sell stuff you know those are all going to be changing calculations and you know, you're going to see more of it in the next few years. Um, and there's many interesting theories, which we'll go to on another time. But I think, yeah, it, it, it's um, it's a very interesting story. OK, let's finish off now um, something completely different. Um, as you know, I follow you and your team on LinkedIn. Mm. And this week you published an article, interesting article about cricket legend Ben Stokes. And a, <laughs> a it's not a tenuous link, but, you know, can you can you explain the link from Ben Stokes to global macroeconomics? It's blatant clickbait, isn't it? No, I mean, I, I do I do believe there is a link. I mean, I was really looking for... It's one of the sort of really interesting things about our times, I think, is about um, this kind of search for agency. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we are all looking for a bit more control over our own destiny. None of us likes to feel like sort of, you know, bits of dirt being carried along, uh, you know, by... Uh, sort of random events, a stream of random events that we have no power to influence our destiny. And, you know, perhaps this kind of, you know, the rebellion against this feeling, and it explains, you know, a little bit some of the sort of feeling behind Brexit, some of the feeling behind, you know, President Trump's election. So a lot of this stuff is about, you know, we want people to cut through the tape and the bureaucracy and do stuff, get stuff done for us. You could also argue that the kind of superhero phenomenon, you know, the, you know, the, the proliferation of superhero movies and TV and so on is catering to this desire to see people who live above 
you know, the random stream of events that we are subjected to. Now, Ben Stokes innings is fascinating because, you know, there were, you know, there were a couple of turning points. You know, eventually he ended up winning the game for England, you know, totally out of the blue. Um, but there were times during this innings when it could have gone in a totally other direction. He could have been caught by, you know, the pantomime villain Australian David Warner. Yeah, and 34, uh, yeah. on 34 runs. And it would have been a totally different history that we were looking at now, a totally different uh, branch of events. You know, there would have been a huge inquisition into the England team. We'd have lost uh, the Ashes. The Ashes would have gone back to Australia. Um, and uh, although they can't travel, actually, because the, 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 the receptacle is too... Uh, too uh, uh, too fragile to travel over to Australia, so they only get a replica. But you look at a totally different sort of version of events, and it hinges on these kind of little moments. And so we, in terms of the commentary, we regularly underplay that kind of luck. And it's the same in investing. We need to be honest with ourselves, and it's the same in economics. Um, and I think that real thing is, is is it's important to be honest with ourselves. I guess that's the big point. So how does how does that relate to today? Well, there's a number of things, I guess, and and I think. You know, if you look at um, the UK's economic history, a good example of um, of luck versus skill might be the first industrial revolution. Um, and you could say that, okay, you know, so there's a big debate about why the first, why the UK was the cradle for the Industrial Revolution. Was it, you know, the atmosphere of free inquiry? Was it, you know, the, 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 the labor force? Was it, you know, what factors meant that we, rather than France or China, really was the cradle for this kind of, you know, this huge moment in human, the world civilization, you know, it really was a turning point for the whole world. And there are those sort of, you know, those skill elements. We did have, you know, free inquiry. We were sort of, you know, that intellectual free inquiry was important. But there are luck factors as well. So we had coal deposits, large coal deposits, very conveniently placed uh, to fuel this revolution. We, you know, there were various other factors that were a little bit lucky. And that kind of changed history for us. Now, if you look at the present day, the story would be really about this kind of global trade atmosphere. Um, Because if we assume that we're in a period where the international trade is going to be a little bit less friendly, the the barriers to international trade are going to go up a little bit. Uh, And that's not unreasonable to assume, to be honest, because generally during past um, periods of kind of rising free trade, you found the presence of a kind of global superpower to be able to kind of support to uh, uh, to be able to um, drive that that story and sort of you know allow some smaller tra- smaller nations to be able to benefit from its kind of superpower um, and generally during periods where the reverse has happened where competition is catching up to that superpower you found that barriers to trade go up it's, there's many historical episodes where you can sort of point to we may be in such an episode now during that period I'll get to my point I promise the advantage of being a huge economy. Um, relative to a small economy is obviously exacerbated. Because think about it. Think about the example of, you know, so uh, trucks. Okay, so Sweden and the US are both sort of major truck manufacturers. Now, the US, in terms of its internal market, it's got huge roads. It's a huge country. They have been to war quite a lot in the last few decades. Um, And so they have, you know, a huge military demand, huge domestic demand, a massive internal market. Sweden doesn't. Um, It hasn't got many roads, not very big roads anyway, relative to the US. They haven't gone to war much. They haven't got much military demand for trucks either. So therefore, if you get to a situation where uh, the barriers to trade between internationally go up, Sweden has not got that massive domestic market to fall back on. That is a disadvantage. Now, in that scenario, 
the UK, you know, the point would be that its search for agency at this point may come at an inopportune moment. You need to be able to sort of trade within a block um, to protect yourself from that less friendly international temperature. So potentially not a good time to uh, go it alone. I think the point here would be that you've got to, uh, for our perspective, you've got to think very carefully. Well, you've got to make sure that you have very strong trading arrangements still, continuing trading arrangements with your largest trading partner by a distance which is still Europe. So that is important. I don't think you can just necessarily kind of float across to the US and put yourself into that um, trading block. Great. Thanks. Well, a really interesting article and I would uh, uh, recommend searching it out on LinkedIn. When I saw the, when I saw the title, I thought it was going to be um, your recommendation to send Ben Stokes over to Brussels to sort everything out. It nearly was. It nearly was. <laughs> <laughs> Will, thank you very much for your time today. As always, you make it all sound so simple. So until next time, take care and we'll speak soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.